Well, good morning. Glad you have joined us to worship this morning. We have been in the Gospel of Luke for the last, oh, year and a half, and uh, we're nearing the end here. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, and uh, we'll look at that here in a moment. I read this week of a quote from a noted atheist professor, uh, Bart Ehrman, he wrote this, I came to think that there is not God who is not a God who is actively involved with this world of pain and misery. If he is, why doesn't he do something about it? I think this question has been echoed by many in our world when they look out and see the trauma and distress. And they ask, where is God? Does he really care? Does God care about the evil and suffering in our world? Does God care about the, the poverty and sickness that so many in our world are experiencing? Does God care about the school shooting in Michigan? Does God care about the flooding in South Sudan? Does God care about hurricanes and other natural disasters that we see? Does God care about Russia looking to begin a war with Ukraine? Does God care about the abuse of the Uyghur people in China and the injustice done to women and children? Does God care? Does God care more directly about my life? What if our lives don't affect the lives of countless others, as in the case of people that I possibly mentioned? But does the creator of the universe really care about you, about what you do and how you live and your free time and where you work or even your thoughts? Does God care whether you eat meat or not, or if you have a relationship with someone or not, or whether you call God or whether you prayed this week? Does God even care that you're here this morning? What do you think? Does God care? What about even more personal? Does God care when someone takes advantage of you, or when you suffer the effects of someone else's anger towards you, or or when someone's self-indulgence is leaves you neglected and ignored, or when everyone just plain ignores you or doesn't seem to care about you at all on this earth, or when church pastors or elders lead you astray, does God care? But then I wonder if, if we're really honest this morning, do we really want God to care? Do we really want God to give concern over you and all of your situations in life? See, all those instances that I just mentioned, as if God cares, all of those are in your favor. The real question this morning is, do you want a God who cares when you obstruct justice? Do you want a God that cares when you abuse someone with your tongue? Do you want a God who cares when you take advantage of your situation? Do you want a God to care when you ignore the poor? or your spouse, or your kids? Do you want a God that cares when you tell a little white lie? Or when you cheat on your taxes, or cheat in your marriage? Does God care about those situations? Does God care when you're continually doing what you know is wrong and against what the Bible teaches and in so doing, strengthen your conscience against him, against his word. Does God care? Do you want him to care? What if God did care? What if he truly cared about that? What if what he did was so great and unprecedented that it shook the heavens and it ripped in half? And not only the temple curtain ripping in half, but the universe itself? What if God cared so much that he gave not just a little, but all of himself? Does God care? How how do we know God cares? What evidence would we need to know that God cares for the world and for us? I believe we know that God cares when we stare at the cross. when we look at the crucifixion. I watched Mel Gibson's movie this week. You probably saw it years ago when it came out, right? The Passion of the Christ, and, or Passion of the Christ, excuse me, and there's a scene in this 
a dramatic scene as, as Jesus is exhausted from the pain and beatings and lying on the ground, bloodied, and, and the guards are still abusing him and mocking him and spitting on him, and a horrified woman in this scene just cries out, someone stop this. And our hearts, our emotions are maybe, maybe tugged to this end. But friend, if someone had stopped it, if someone had stepped in to halt it, we wouldn't have been delivered from our sins. And I know this sounds horrific, but I'm relieved today that they didn't stop it. We gather this morning simply because they didn't stop the punishment of our Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 says, this is the gospel and this is why we gather. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust of this morning's sermon. To answer the question whether God cares, we have to look at the cross. And you will not understand the cross until you understand yourself. And to understand yourself, Luke's going to give us three pictures of people in our text this morning, and that will be our outline. Jesus and the women, Jesus and the criminals, and Jesus and the centurion. So there's the main outline, or the main idea and the outline there if you want to take notes. But we're going to dive in. Before we look at the text, I want to give just a short word about crucifixion to fill you in if you're unfamiliar with what that is or what that means. One author said this, Crucifixion was a method of execution originally practiced in the East but adopted by the Romans to punish serious crimes. It was not inflicted on Roman citizens but was reserved for slaves, pirates, and religious and political rebels. The cross was generally a pole placed in the ground and toppled by a portable crossbar. Prior to being crucified, the victim was beaten with a leather whip containing pieces of metal or bone that tore the flesh. They were then forced to carry the crossbar to the place of execution. The crossbar was fixed to the top of the pole and the victim was either tied or nailed with his arms stretched along it. Death was a slow process and could take up to several days. Sometimes in order to hasten death, the Romans increased the strain on the body by breaking the leg bones of the victim. Without the ability to support their body, the victim's lungs would collapse, causing suffocation. What we learn from history is crucifixion was invented by the evil of men, the wickedness of man. When a person was crucified here in in Rome, it was done in a way to to make it public. They, They didn't want to just get rid of the criminal. They wanted to teach a lesson to those that looked on, to intimidate them. So they would do it in public. And this morning we're going to look at the crucifixion in Luke 23. If you haven't already, turn to Luke 23. We're going to look at verses 26 through 49. We're going to stop before we get to the end of the chapter, and I'll tell you why as we get into this. First, Jesus and the woman. We're going to look at verses 26 and following. As we've looked at the last few weeks, when we come to the crucifixion, we come to an event where it seems that no one knows exactly what's going on, the whole, the whole scheme of what's happening. So all seem to be confused and bewildered in some way by the events. As we saw last week, Pilate is confused and why such the outrage against Jesus. The disciples are fearful for what's happening and confused. Herod, he doesn't know what's going on. He's busy partying. He, he doesn't have any clue what's happening. Everyone seems to be confused except for Jesus. He knows exactly what's happening. And, and we come to the end of Jesus in our passage this morning. The trials are over, the sentence has been given, and Jesus will die. In verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. As I said earlier, it was customary for a criminal to carry his own cross, a final indignity before the fatal event, but Jesus had endured so much at this point, even though he was a healthy, strong man, he was unable to carry his cross. Evidence of Jesus' physical weakness is also seen in the speed in which he died. Usually the victim of crucifixion could take up to three days to die, but as we will find out, Jesus was dead within hours. And Simon of, of Cyrene was, was likely a believer along with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who had come into the country for Passover. We find out by his two sons from Mark 15. And why does these gospel writers include Simon and then Mark mentioning Alexander and Rufus, his sons? Well, they mention it because it really happened. 
Just so you know, this is truth. There's another instance where the gospel writers are giving factual evidence to those that would possibly doubt if this really took place. And Luke's gospel was written within most likely uh, Simon's lifetime, most definitely his, his son's lifetime. And so if you were curious, is this true? Guess what? You could ask him. They were there. They would confirm that this truly took place. And so these gospel writers would put in these, these, these little comments to verify of the truth of what was to happen. Luke continues, though, in verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? This is an interesting dialogue. It's only found in Luke's gospel. These women identify with the crucified one, with Jesus, the one rejected by the majority in Israel, and they follow him, and Jesus has a word for them. Even though Jesus is in the midst of incredible, excruciating pain and torture, he's still preaching. And the reason why he's preaching to them is to, is to wake them up about what's to happen. He wants them to understand that God cares for them, and he wants them to believe in him. You see, unless he helps, unless the Father helps open the eyes to see, they will not be able to believe. If you remember back a few chapters, Jesus gave a warning of what was coming for Jerusalem in 70 AD, that they would come in and and destroy the city, and they would sack it, and they would destroy the temple. And he does the same thing here. He's given the same warning. He warns them as he did in, in Luke 21 and then Mark 13. But here he quotes Hosea 10 says in verse 30, then, then he will begin to say, the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. This is a direct quote from Hosea 10.8. And see, in the Old Testament, this is describing the last day, the judgment day, the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2.10 has something similar. It says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks, for, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then we read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, that John the Apostle takes Hosea 10 and that quote here and Isaiah 2 and then he puts it together. Revelation says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? See, what Jesus is doing here, he's bringing up something monumental for them to consider and to listen and to pay attention to. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Are we not to weep for Jesus and what he's about to do here? Is it saying it's wrong to cry for him? No, not exactly. I I weep this week as I studied. He's not saying this. He's saying to them, he's saying to us this morning, if you're only weeping for me, then you don't understand what's going on here. You don't understand your future. You see, Jesus is going to die. He is a man under a death sentence. He is a man condemned to die. But you don't understand. You can't see that. You can't see that you're under a death sentence too. You're going to die. You have a death sentence over you. You are a dead man walking. And you don't understand it. You don't understand that judgment hangs over your head. You don't understand that you will stand before the God of the universe one day and you will cry out. If you're not in him, you will beg and plead for the mountains to fall on you. It won't be God calling for this. 
This isn't judgment from God. This will be you begging for some relief, for mercy, screaming and imploring for the rocks to fall on you, to hide you from him. And you will desire more than anything to be covered. As you stand before God, holy and just, and if you're not in Jesus Christ, you will beg for this. You will feel completely exposed, naked before God, and you will cry out for the rocks to fall on you. See, friends, this is Jesus warning them for that fateful day of judgment when he will come back. And he's imploring them to find their refuge in him. The only safe way is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is preaching to these women here. He's preaching to you, my friend, that until you weep for yourself, you can't weep for him. Until you understand what's wrong with you, until you understand that you are in danger, until you understand that there's a death sentence for you, you won't understand what Jesus is about to do. See, until you weep for yourself, you will not be able to weep for him. And friends, a Christian is one who has learned to weep for himself or herself. And they have found that their only hope is in Jesus Christ alone. If you weep for yourself, if you see yourself under a death sentence, then and only then you will see and understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. Then and only then you will fully understand how much God cares for you, how much God loves you. I really feel for those who don't believe and are not following God and who reject Jesus. They don't know what they're doing. They're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And they need Jesus. And they need to be gently and lovingly warned of their impending doom. This is how much God cares. Even while Jesus is being led away, he knows what he's about to endure and he's beat up and bloody and he pauses to preach to share good news to give them the way to God and Jesus is emphatic here he says in verse 31 that if these kind of things can happen when the wood is green literally to an innocent man like him then what will happen more easily when the wood is dry to sinners like themselves what does Jesus mean here? If citizens living in a reasonably civilized society under a fairly stable and reasonable just government can overrule the government and insist on the execution of an innocent man, not to mention the fact that he was God's son and their Messiah, if priests in a nationally recognized religion which stands for divine law and morality and ethical behavior can use lies to pressurize the civil power to commit judicial murder, what kind of behavior will prevail in a society that has lost all respect for justice and law and morality and religion and God? See, when the wood is dry, what will happen then? Jesus knows what will happen. And so he's imploring people to turn from their wicked unbelief and to trust in him. So first, we see Jesus and the woman. Second, Jesus and the criminals. Luke continues to give us details of that day through the eyes now of two criminals. Look at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus is between two Two criminals, which is the precise fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he was numbered among the transgressors from Isaiah 53, 12. But here Luke is, is very brief. He just writes, there they crucified him. That's the extent of what he writes. But Matthew and Mark give us more details of what transpired. 
Matthew 27, 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken by God is the ultimate penalty for sin. The pit of hell is the abode of the utterly forsaken. To be forsaken is to be cast out into utter, an outer darkness. It's to receive the, the violent anger and curse of God. And to the Jew, to be cursed of God is to be cut off from the light of his presence. In the Old Testament rite of atonement, the, the scapegoat, as we read in Leviticus, is loaded down by the transfer of the people's sins on its back. And it's driven outside of the camp, outside of the range of the presence of God to be abandoned in the wilderness. We know this term today, right? Scapegoat. We know this term in our culture. We see it in movies and politics. And we see it in sports, you know I was going to get to football at some point, right? We see it. I saw it this last week. As, as the Steelers were trying to win a game, at the very last second, one of the receivers, after a great play, just, just does something to get attention. And the clock gets ticking down, and they ran out of time, and they lost. And you know what happened? He was the scapegoat. That's what they called him. He received all the blame for what had happened. He was the scapegoat in that situation. And here, what we read in the scriptures, Jesus is our scapegoat. On the cross, Jesus didn't just receive the blame. Jesus became the curse. He took our blame. He became blamed. He is the very realization of the curse. He was our scapegoat. And the site, where was Jesus crucified? Luke says the place that is called the skull. That this brutal crucifixion would not take place within the holy city of Jerusalem. No, it went outside of the city gates to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. And they would send him out. And he would take the blame and he would do all of this outside of the city. And here Jesus becomes the scapegoat. He was cut off from his people, from his city, and from his God. Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. It is absolutely repugnant in his sight. Before the cross, Jesus was infinitely beautiful in his father's eyes. But once he takes on the burden of our sins, once he became sin, everything changes. When the sin of man is transferred to him as the sins of Israel are transferred to the scapegoat, once he was beautiful to the father, now he comes, becomes revolting to him. So when Matthew says, why have you forsaken me? That's what's transpiring here. It's not that he simply took on our sins. No, Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. On the cross, Jesus becomes in the sight of God the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. And friends, it's important that we realize this and we digest this, and we accept this, and we believe this. Johnny Erickson Tata writes this. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed Robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys and peddle killer drugs and travel in cliques and mock your parents. 
Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, to plan insurrections, to torture animals, and to worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, watching pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? And in this moment, the father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks, drowning in raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in one single direction. Right at his only son. See, the justice of this event is seeing that sin is not merely winked at, but it's truly and fully punished in God's Son. Your sin, my sin, was heaped on God's Son. Do we really want to believe that God doesn't care? Can we not see how much he cares? And how does Jesus respond to their extreme mistreatment and brutal, horrific torture? Look at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. See, to mock Christ as the rulers and soldiers do here was so misconceived, so incredibly silly. They might have just mocked a literal Passover lamb because while it saved others, it could not save itself. And so they don't understand, truly, they have no clue what Jesus is doing on the cross. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. You know, in some small sense, there's, there's a little bit of logic to what they're saying. They, they believe from their mindset, this is, this is the hour. If, if you're really the king, if you're really going to exercise any power, now is the time, Jesus. You've been telling us you're a king, that you're the Messiah. Now is the time to display that. If not now, then when? And then the, the first thief joins in, verse 39. One of the criminals who, who were hanged rallied at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is truly displaying his power. He's displaying his kingship. He's displaying his rightful position. But he and others don't understand that a savior who comes in this weakness, they don't want that kind of savior. See, the thief believes himself to be okay. I mean, he knows he's gonna die, but everything else in his life, he, he, he sees himself as okay. He, he didn't believe that he needed a savior to die for him. See, what he wants is an example as a savior. He wants a helper. He wants a general. He wants a leader. He wants someone to show him the way so that he can do it on his own. He doesn't think he needs saving. He's full of his own self-confidence. Jesus, show me how it's done. Lead the way and I'll save myself. Jesus doesn't answer. Doesn't answer him, doesn't answer the mocking from the ground. 
Instead, we see that he prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't see that their only hope is for Jesus to stay there. They can't see it. Their only hope is for Jesus to stay on the cross, to endure, and to finish this. But he believes that his only hope is for Jesus to come off the cross and to take him off the cross. And a lot of people, perhaps even some that are seated here today, believe the same thing. You're convinced that you know how your life should go. And here, here's how that thought process might go. First, you know how your life should go. You, you just know. You know the plan. You, you know how it should go. Second, if there is a God and he really cares for me, he knows that I know how my life should go. And third, if he's, if he's not making my life go the way I think it should go, then he's really not God or he's just a bad God. And what you're doing, you're saying, I don't believe any good can come out of the bad in my life. I know the way. I know how my life should go. And God needs to work in my way. And this is what the the first thief is saying. I know how my life should go. So Jesus, what kind of idiot are you to stay on this cross and to submit to this? You need to get off the cross and you need to get me off the cross. And he misses who Jesus really is. But the second thief, he's strikingly different. Look what he says, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. What a message this thief is preaching while he hangs on the cross. He knows, and he's showing us signs of spiritual awakening as he's beginning to die. And he looks over at the other thief, and he reminds them why they're there. The first thief has broken the law, but he doesn't want to make payment for it. But the other thief knows he's broken the law, and he accepts the payment. And so he understands himself. He understands his life through the eyes of God, and he understands who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And then look at verse 42. This is really astonishing. He says in verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is astonishing. He's, he's convinced that Jesus has a future. No one else seemed to believe that on that day. Who are the disciples? They're gone, they're struggling. Everyone else is observing this, fearful. This is the end. And here's the thief saying, Jesus, there's a future for you. I see it, and I want to be a part of it. Jesus is bloodied up. He's beat up. He's gruesome. He's playing grotesque at this point. Death is coming, and this thief speaks of a coming kingdom, and he asks to be a part of this kingdom. He sees what most people refuse to see. He saw the gospel while he hung on the cross and he submits himself to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said of this text in a sermon that he preached, he says, there's not a man or woman here who has ever realized in their own mind the actual death of Christ. It stands beyond us. This man saw it with his own eyes. And for him to call him Lord who was hanging on a tree was no small triumph of faith. For him to ask Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, though he saw that Jesus bleeding his life away and hounded to the death was a splendid act of reliance. For him to commit his everlasting destiny into the hands of one who was, to all appearance, unable to even preserve his own life was a noble achievement of faith. This thief's faith in Christ allowed him to see what Jesus came to earth to do. And he realizes that he can only, he cannot save himself, 
And the only way to save himself is by admitting that he can't save himself. And so he cries out to Jesus for salvation. He doesn't ask for paradise. He doesn't ask to get off the cross. He doesn't ask for any sort of human relief. He asks to be with Jesus. And there's such a clear difference between him and the other thief. See, the first one asked for his body to be saved. And the other one asked for his soul to be saved. And what he really wanted that moment wasn't the physical joys and physical relief. All he wanted was Jesus. Is that how you responded to Jesus? Or is Jesus only there to give you a good life here on earth? Is Jesus only there so you can have relational peace in your home? So you can have obedient kids, a good job, peaceful life? And what I'm asking is, do you only want God for his gifts? Or do you want God for himself? Do you want God even if he gives no gifts on earth? Is Jesus enough? This is what we see in the thief here. Jesus is enough. And how does his Lord respond? Verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, what a day for this thief, right? He had breakfast with Satan lunch with Jesus on the cross, and he's going to dine with God in paradise. What a glorious God we serve. He truly saves us by no work of our own. And this incident alone is sufficient enough to refute the false doctrine from the false Catholic Church who believes and teaches that a person upon death enters into purgatory. This verse demonstrates that salvation is not dependent on good works or religious performance in this life or some sort of space after. The criminal had no opportunity to make any reparation for his past sin. All he did was place his faith in Christ and Jesus promises eternal life. And that day he would be with him in paradise. You know, there are still deathbed conversions that happen today. Praise the Lord. But some of you have lived under the sound of the gospel from your childhood and you've heard faithful preaching for decades and you are putting off repentance because you think that you can live your life any way you please and you can just wait till your deathbed to get right with him. But friend, what if when that day comes, you don't see Jesus like the second thief? You see him like the first. And you don't understand the gospel. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised to understand and have faith to believe then. Salvation is holy of God. And so I implore you at the sound of gospel preaching to repent. To not neglect of this repentance. To turn from your rejection of him and turn to Christ. I know that we every week have unbelievers in our gathering. And friend, you are always welcome here. Please continue to come back. And whether you're just visiting or you've been here for a long time or perhaps you're a child and mom and dad bring you every week, I'm glad you're here and I pray for you. I pray that you will have this type of humility that we see in the second thief on the cross. I pray that you'll be able to admit that you're a sinner. I pray that you're able to acknowledge that God's condemnation is righteous and it's coming. 
And I pray that you can see clearly this morning that you cannot save yourself, that you need a Savior. And I pray that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Friend, I'm praying for you. I know there are others as well right now praying for you. We're praying that you would turn from your unbelief and you would trust in Jesus alone. And Christians, here, you have already received this good news. And so we should not act as if we're superior now because we've been humbled by Jesus. We need still to understand and believe and and rest in the gospel as Christians. We do not rely on our good works to get us through life. We keep going back to the cross to see our hope and our strength. You're not saved by how good you obey or how great you are as a Christian. You're saved because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we need to remember that and, and glory in that and rest in that. And because of that, because of what Jesus has done, I recognize that some of you need to forgive people who have hurt you. Jesus says to your Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And he's praying for the repentance. And some of you need to do the same. Some of you are holding on to sins that have been done to you, serious sins, and bitterness is growing and growing in your heart. And you need to pray for the repentance of others, which kills the roots of bitterness that have sprouted up in your heart. Pray that God would enlighten them to see their sin and to come to you with humility and true forgiveness. Jesus is not letting them off here. He knows their sin, but he's going to the Father for them. He's interceding for them. So friends, you should make that a practice in your life as well. Pray for the repentance of others. Make it a practice to pray more for your enemies than living in anger towards your enemies. Pray for them. Well, we've seen Jesus and the woman and Jesus and the thieves and last, Jesus and the centurion. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Then the curtain of the Lord, or the, excuse me, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Darkness here in the Old Testament is a sign of both God's judgment and the coming day of the Lord. And Luke is saying here, he's telling us the sun failed. It literally stopped shining in the middle of the day. It was darkness. My mind went back to Amos 8 9, where Lord willing, we'll spend some time in that book next year. Amos says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's part of a, of a judgment passage against Israel. And perhaps this darkness foretold in Amos shows us the judgment that is coming to God's people for the rejection of their Messiah. And yet in the midst of the judgment, Luke tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This, this was in the front of the most holy place in the temple. This was actually a double curtain of over 90 feet high. Both its bulk and its height meant that it could not be torn by human hands. And so the torn veil means the temple would no longer be the meeting place between God and his people. That function had come to an end forever. So can you imagine the horror now of the religious leaders seeing this? And maybe asking the questions, What did we do? They killed the Son of Man. And now their jobs are essentially over. That's it. They've been replaced. We read that in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It was to be no longer the job of a high priest to enter that one day of the year to perform his duties. No, it was shattered by Jesus. He is our only priest. All barriers are now open and all believers have free access to the Father. The the one who was despised and rejected by men has caused us to be welcomed and received by God. In verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus, again, quoting scripture, Psalm 31, 5, and speaking here with a loud voice shows us that, that Jesus didn't die of utter exhaustion. He died on his terms. It was his decision to breathe his last. He says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. It was not a cry of defeat, but a triumphant cry of victory. Victory over sin, over Satan, victory over death, even though he would momentarily die. This final cry indicates that the curse has been removed. Payment made. It is finished. And now fellowship with the Father has been restored. And what's the response? Verse 47 now, when centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. This centurion seated it all. He had supervised the cruel flogging of Jesus, but he also heard Jesus mercifully tell the daughters of Jerusalem not to weep, but for themselves. And he had seen Jesus look at them and his, his cohorts and pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he heard Jesus promise paradise to one of the thieves crucified beside him. And he'd likely stood close enough to the cross in the chilling darkness to make sure that no foul play had occurred and had sensed this cosmic sign of an eerie midnight day. And he had, he had heard the three triumphant cries and he had seen the victorious calm with which Jesus gave up his life. He's a centurion. He had saw and heard all of this. And so I don't think it's shocking at all to hear his testimony. And his testimony is, is part of the wider theme that Luke is painting here, that Jesus was completely innocent. He was the spotless Passover lamb. Was the centurion saved that day? We don't know. But we do see in the centurion's declaration at the foot of the cross that Jesus' death was not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And Luke had been driving home this point for 23 chapters. If you remember, Luke tells us at the beginning of the gospel that the first person to address Jesus in Jerusalem after his birth was Simeon, who praised God and said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So Luke continues to weave this in the whole gospel account. It comes for us, the world. Jesus came for us. And Luke tells us at the end of the gospel that the first one to speak of Jesus in Jerusalem after his death was a centurion who glorified God. And by confessing Jesus, seemingly it seems became a proclaimer of salvation possible to Gentiles. And then verse 48, and all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. They too saw the righteousness of Jesus and went so far as to dramatically lament his death. In verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They saw his death. But just a few days they would see him alive. We're not going to get there today. You'll have to come back next week. Because Jesus is alive. You know, today's December 12th less than two weeks away from Christmas. I really love celebrating this holiday with my church family and my family at home. And although at first blush, you might not think a sermon on the crucifixion has much to do with Christmas, but it's very connected to Christmas. We sang about it earlier. What child is this? Did you catch that? What lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. We chose that song on purpose. Because it sings of his birth and it sings of his death. It's a Christmas song, but it's a crucifixion song. This is why we remember, this is why we celebrate this holiday as, as Christians. 
The doctrine of Christmas, the incarnation of is God sending his son down to us. Christmas means God has gone infinite lengths to come near to you for you to have a personal relationship with him so that you can know him personally. See, God is not interested simply in just being known about or a concept to be believed in. He's not just a a powerful force that you bow to in some way. No, he comes to us. We don't have to work to get to him. He came to us. The infinite becomes infant to live among us and to bring us into relationship with God. See, friends, at Christmas... God went to boundless lengths to get near to you, to get close to you, so that you can know him personally. He went to infinite lengths. He left his glory behind. He left an all-surrounding, eternally fulfilling love of the Trinity to come low, to be humiliated, to come live among us. He came to die for us. This closeness is incredible for us to understand at Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. See, at Christmas, God took on flesh and entered the world to be horribly abused, to be slaughtered and pierced and hung on a tree and to be buried and raised from the dead and to ascend on high. And it's all done for the sinner's joy. Christ endured the agony of the cross for the joy set before him, for his joy in redeeming us, for our joy in knowing him. This is what the end of the gospel brings. Joy for the sinner who now looks at his Savior face to face. So does God care? We see that clearly in the cross. And not just on the cross and the the resurrection and ascension, we see it more clearly in the scriptures in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for their former things have passed away. God truly cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for sending Jesus down to us. Father, we thank you for his life and his death for us. We thank you for raising him from the dead to conquer sin so that we could live eternally with you. And we look forward to seeing that next week. We thank you for Christmas where we can remember all of this and we can celebrate with joy. The infinite becomes infant to live among us and to bring us to you. Help us now as we continue to worship and as we leave this place to remember you and what you've done for us and to rejoice. For we, thank this, we, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.